Welcome to the Droma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, or JOMA, podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member, and I'm really, really honored and really, really excited to be interviewing tonight Dr. Peter S. Jensen. Before I start, I will say that I love when people reach out to me. Um, I did have to track Dr. Jensen down because he's super, super, super busy and super amazing. I think everybody I have on is amazing, but um, other people have volunteered to be on my podcast, and I'm super excited about that, too. Um, I love to interview a wide range of people from a wide range of backgrounds and a wide range of medical and mental health topics. So don't hesitate to reach out at health at joma.org, H-E-A-L-T-H at joma, J-O-W-M-A dot O-R-G. So tonight I'm interviewing Dr. Peter Jensen, adjunct professor of psychiatry, University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and board chair and founder of the REACH Institute in New York, City, New York. Dr. Jensen is the board chair of the REACH Institute resource for advancing children's health, a 501c3 nonprofit organization he founded in 2006 to disseminate evidence-based interventions for child and adolescent mental health. From 1999 to 2009, he worked at the National Institute of Mental Health, the NIMH, where he served as the NIMH Associate Director for Child and Adolescent Mental Health Research. He then moved to Columbia University to assume an endowed professorship within the Department of Psychiatry, where he founded and directed the Center for the Advancement of Children's Mental Health. He left New York in 2009 to join the Mayo Clinic's Department of Psychiatry and Psychology, where he co-led the Division of Child Psychiatry and Psychology, eventually becoming the vice chair of the department research until his retirement in 2013. In 2014, he was appointed professor of psychiatry and acting director, Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Arkansas Children's Hospital in Little Rock, then moving to adjunct professor in 2018. While at the NIMH, Dr. Jensen was the lead NIMH investigator on the Multimodal Treatment of ADHD Study, MTA, and an investigator for other multi-site national studies. He has served on many federal task forces, including the planning board for the landmark Surgeon General's 1999 report on mental health and numerous committees for the American Psychiatric Association and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. He has held multiple national offices, including president of the International Society for Research on Child and Adolescent Psychopathology, secretary and council member of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and as member of the CHAD board and its scientific advisory board. A passionate advocate for children's mental health, Dr. Jensen is also the author of over 300 peer-reviewed articles and chapters and 20 books and has received many awards for his research, teaching and child advocacy from multiple national organizations, including the Hall of Fame Award from CHAD and awards from the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Society for Child Psychiatric Nursing, and NAMI, the National Association of Mentally Ill. Wow. Welcome, Dr. Jensen. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. 
I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh my gosh, I am so incredibly excited and so incredibly honored. I mean, I am just actually beyond. I mean, I read through your 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 uh, resume, your bio. It is just you can really you really have a bird's eye view of all child and adolescent psychiatry. So this is an incredible honor for me. So well, it was a it was a great honor to work at NIH and mm. begin to get that overview of all of the nation's research and what was needed. What was missing? Right, right. So I want to talk about that. I want to first just start by telling people what the REACH Institute is. Well, so REACH is an acronym. The Resource for Advancing Children's Health. Now, I spent 10 years at NIH uh, mounting big national studies on ADHD and depression and other things. And so we were launching a, if you will, just like a war on cancer. It was a war on the child mental health problems, trying to bring data to the table, which we had very little of. So I came there in 1989 and stayed till about 2000. And what we did was we greatly increased the dollars into more research. And so while I was there, I got a chance to know the research all around the country, as well as what we were doing at NIH, and to uh, really push the envelope. Now, the problem was, just as I was leaving NIMH, I learned, maybe a year or so before, that new research takes 20 years mm. to get to a practicing pediatrician or child psychiatrist. That means if you have a child with a problem, you're probably getting research and practices that are a decade or two decades mm -hmm. old. And so we saw that's a major problem. And how do we speed it up? So I came to Columbia University. I left NIH, came to Columbia, and brought by a wealthy donor whose own kids had been misdiagnosed mm. for over a decade. Wow. And he wanted to change things. And so as, so I started that process. It was a new center to make sure proven practices were actually implemented across the country. Well, how do you make sure that happens? That means you got to get into the heads and hearts of practicing doctors everywhere. And it can't be done by a brochure. Right. So we know that even a journal article, a great journal article doesn't change what doctors do. You know, a practicing doctor says, huh, interesting. Well, I don't know if that reapplies to me. That's what happens usually. And so what that meant was we had to embark on a whole new set of activities. We started at Columbia, but we soon realized if I always was, uh, our activities were beholden to Columbia, we couldn't get into Boston because Harvard would say, you, we don't need you. We, we have Harvard. And that would be true at Hopkins. That would be true at Duke and uh, Yale, any place across the country uh, who, where this, that problem existed. They all had the same 15 to 20 year gap. What they weren't doing was activities that reached out into the community, captured the heads and hearts of practicing clinicians and taught them how to do state of the art. 
some, uh, and, and the reason is simple. I think about it. A doctor is a small business owner. That's what many of them are. And a small business owner, he gets set up or she gets set up and they do things the way they do things and that they get comfortable and they don't have time to stop the business and go back to grad school and learn new things. And so what we've had to do is go out to them, bring it to them, find a way to kind of capture them, their organizations. And so that's why we say it's a resource, reach is a resource for advancing children's health. We don't say mental health either because the big health problem is mental health. Right, right. So why, why uh, turn people away who say, I don't do mental health? I don't you know, do that psych stuff. stuff. <laughs> yeah. So that's what reaches. So we train pediatricians. We train therapists. We train teachers. We even train parents, not for their own kids, but to help parents be coaches for new parents. Having a peer mentor is a very powerful thing. And mm -hmm. sometimes parents need someone like them that they can talk to and trust. That is amazing. And I understand that Project Reach has reached into every state in the United States except for four. Is that correct? I think we're pretty much in every state now. Um, now, how do we get in there? Well, sometimes doctors come to one of our trainings that might be in Chicago or L.A. or Florida. And so we have doctors coming from all around the country. And then as much as we can, we go to specific states and try to attract uh, doctors and therapists from those areas. We're also in a couple of Canadian provinces. So, uh, but, and what we found, there's so many doctors that need to be trained that we have to create new teaching teams. So, for example, we've got a new team at Duke now. So, so we train the Duke people, and then they're now doing our trainings for doctors in their area. So we always try to set up new sites because there's only so many of us at the national level. Right. Let's, let's go into what training means. So I know I did something through what used to be called CAT-PC and is now called Project Teach. That is one of your psychiatric liaison programs from REACH, right? That's correct. Yeah, CAT-PC was in New York, and CAPC used all of our methods. So we trained them, and then they had their own brand. They said, well, we want to call them, be called CAPC. We said, fine, because they're doing many more things. They were doing reach, but they also had phone call service. Mm -hmm. So a doctor could call any time during the week and get consultation. Reach doesn't do that, because what we do is six months long. So we train people so they're up and going for six months. And then we move on to another city or another state or another region. And we try to create new teachers where we, wherever we go. So we created five new teaching sites in New York, uh, Columbia, Buffalo, mm -hmm. Rochester, you know, uh, Long Island, et cetera. Right. Those are the sites for the, for the project Teach, though. Correct. Yeah, that's the same as Project Teach. They've gone right. through various names, uh, so they've had different names for what they're doing. I have to say, though, that I really do like the Project Teach model where they also have the call-in because not all healthcare professionals will be willing to do the training, which maybe you want to elaborate on what the training entails. Yeah, so what Project Teach has been trying to do, now our training is very intensive. 
And so when we do a training, usually we ask the doctors to stick with us for six months. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that is because if you do what I call a hit and run, you know, a, a half day workshop, right. it doesn't change what they do. And so we strongly prefer uh, the six month model. Now that's not six months away from their office. You know, that's a three day Zoom conference training and then six months of ongoing conference calls with 10 or 12 doctors and they share cases and there'll be a pediatrician and a child psychiatrist facilitating those calls that last for six months. What most of our learners tell us is there was the six months that really made it mm -hmm. stick. That's where they really learned. Right. Because I remember doing it. You would have a case. Everybody would take a case and present the case. And it was, it was much more like hands-on. Exactly right. Right. Not all states have what Project Teach has with the phone call liaison, because I really like that. Both states now have a phone call service. They do. That's about all. Right. Uh, but, you know, in North Carolina, so we knew that Duke was going in for federal funding. So we said, look, we'll help you. You go ahead and do your phone call, but we'll teach you how to teach your doctors. Mm. Um, and so what we've seen, we saw with CAPBC and other places, a doctor can have a phone call service. Like he, anytime he needs or she needs, they can call a shrink like me. Mm -hmm. But uh, the problem is now the primary care, they love it. They're really glad for it because they don't feel so desperate. But it doesn't change your behavior over time. So people have studied that. It gives them a little bit of new knowledge, not a lot. And there's a lot of things where they could, if they actually had more intensive training, they could do even more things and so they wouldn't have to call. Uh, or there are times when maybe they should be calling, but because they missed the diagnosis, they don't call. Okay. Right. So what, what the CAPPC people showed was the REACH training uh, plus the call service had this big impact. Mm -hmm. All service alone had a tiny impact. Right. And so the REACH training had the big impact, but it was great with the call service as well. But the call service alone only gives you a small bump. Right. It's like if you teach a man to fish, right? <laughs> you got to teach him to fish. Right. But I mean, I, I can tell you from my own experience, even though I went through the program and I am better at, you know, picking it up and, you know, diagnosing it, you know, maybe treating it. Um, I still have questions. And, yeah, I, yeah. and yeah. I love being able to ask them all kinds of, you know, unusual things come up. And it's amazing to be able to call up and get a psychiatrist in 30 minutes on the phone. Yeah, it's a wonderful service. Yeah. But once you've been trained, you'll find you, uh, many people uh, say, oh, I know how to handle this. Right. Uh, you know, and then all those little haphazard questions you have, you know, a lot of them get handled in a, during an intensive training. Right, right, right. You may not call for months or years on end. But it's right. there for you. So <laughs> I like that. So let's talk about that mental health crisis or the health crisis, as you said, because it really is everything. So COVID has, mm. has, has revealed the soft underbelly right. of our mental health service system. Now, in fact, the child mental health service system, and to a lesser extent, the adult mental health service system, has been broken for a long time. And the Surgeon General 
when I was at NIH, issued a major report and said, this is a crisis. And if you look at the data before COVID of every child with a mental health condition, very significant mental health condition, only about a third got any treatment in any given year. And only about a third of those got an effective proven treatment. So that's one in 10. One in 10 really get maybe good care. Uh, three in 10 get some care. But you know what the most common mental health service in the country is? School counselors who see you one or two times. Uh, 15 minutes. Right. Where are people getting mental health services? You know, the big national studies that have looked at this, they count a couple of uh, brief chats with a school counselor. Getting a therapist is much uh, less common and seeing a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist like me, is probably about 5%. I will have to say that the way I perceive mental health in school is really just to help them function in school and not to really address their mental health in a broader way. That's true. Unless I, I have seen it where they do have a collaboration with a mental health team and that's different. Yeah. And so that will depend on the school district. Right. And often if there's a nice big university close by, mm -hmm. that happens all the time where a university tries to take a school couple schools or even sometimes the school system under its wing. And that's good for the university because they can send their pediatricians or their child psychiatrists over there to get more experience. But one in 15 to one in 20 schools have, have that kind of resource. It's really rare. And it's, it's usually in big cities with a university. If you look around every New York Every New York City school, uh, it's going to be highly variable. I work a lot in the New York City schools, and they, the average amount of resources is close to zero. How is this even possible? Well, I think one of the things we see happen, if you, if you see somebody who's passionate and wants to reach out, get into the schools, I've seen this happen half again. Bunch of people come out of the woodwork and saying, we don't want shrinks in our schools. You guys cause mental health problems. And so the Scientologists uh, have kind of, uh, you know, maintained that claim for years that mental health, mental health providers cause mental health problems to inflate their wallets. You know, this is so, like the anti-vaccine version of the mental health world. That's yeah, crazy. It would be very so. It's totally divorced from any oh. evidence or data. Wow. Only playing on people's fears, uh, and so very. So when I came to Columbia, this wealthy donor wanted me to go into every school, and we were very worried because of just that. So we knew we'd get huge pushback. And in fact, we did. And so frequently we would get kicked out of schools. And so finally, eventually we had to take a somewhat different strategy. So, for example, rather than to say, I'm going to go in and screen every kid in the school, well, you're going to get bit by that. You're going to because there are some people who think it's none of your business. 
Uh, on the other hand, if you say, I'm going to assist the special education staff mm. who have kids they're really worried about, and the parents are already worried, and I will work with them. I'm not going to try to get, but now the problem is there's still going to be four, three out of four kids will remain unidentified. Right, you're so doing the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, they, or they get labeled as a bad kid or they suffer in silence. So it's now, I think things are improving. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you could argue one thing COVID has done is it increased more awareness right. that kids were under stress. Right. 9-11 um, had the same effect in New mm -hmm. York. We could go places, and Katrina, we could go places in those affected areas because people were hungry and said, help us, teach us how to do it. Uh, but under non-stress conditions, people will say, leave well enough alone in the general school systems. Be because stigma. Stigma. stigma this isn't just Scientology, this is stigma. Stigma and fear mm -hmm. uh, that maybe it, it'll cause, for example, if a child is suicidal, people are afraid, you don't talk about it because you'll right. make him do something. Well, just the opposite is true. Right. Yeah, the best thing you can do with a depressed kid is talk about those things that he might be afraid to tell anyone else. And that's your surest way to make sure that there's not a fatal act. Right. I, I did a separate interview with Dr. Leah Gagina, who has a pediatric mental health podcast called Pediatric Meltdown. And we talked about suicide prevention, which should be coming out in time for the new 988 emergency number, like the equivalent the of 911. Yeah. 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 So that's really, really important. So yeah, that's, that's misunderstanding. That's fear for misunderstanding. But I, you know, I, I find as a pediatrician that one of my biggest barriers is dealing with the stigma that the parents have about mental illness. That's and true. Education. That's, that's a great point. Now, what that means is uh, a pediatrician may be worried about how do we even raise it? Mm -hmm. How do we talk about it? And so, so that's part of when we actually engage and teach primary care. We teach them how to open, how to talk about it, how to be unafraid. Um, and, uh, and in fact, the studies have shown when a doctor is willing to talk about it and raise the issues, 19 out of 20 parents are very grateful. There's one that may not be, and that may be the one the pediatrician is scared about, but most parents are very grateful. You know what I find though, right? Because I think also the pediatrician or the you know HCP is afraid also to bring it up, and they shouldn't be. And I think it's also how you bring it up, and with the idea of okay, I may have multiple conversations. Yeah, right. Just plant well, a seed, and That's you okay. have the advantage of a long-term relationship. You know, uh, but I did an interesting study um, of pediatricians and parents across the country. And I asked the pediatricians, how often do you bring up mental health in your office visits? And most pediatricians out of 200 pediatricians said, almost all the time. Good. Now I had 200, 300 parents. They said, almost never, never or almost never. So now what does that mean? You know, and now it, for a pediatrician, it might be they will say, how is Johnny? How's Johnny doing? That might be in their own eye, the mental health assessment. Uh, 
But we know that those kind of global comments just don't work. You really have to say, tell me about his mood. Right. Tell me about, does he have worries? Uh, uh, what's, wh what are the best things going on in his life? What are the areas you wish could go a little bit better? So you got to learn that. You got to teach the primary care provider how to open, and they got to practice, just like swimming. If I just say it, no, what we do in our trainings, we have them practice mm -hmm. talking the talk and walking the walk. It, it's really a fabulous program, and we should, at the end, make sure we make a big plug for it because I want all everybody to do it, everybody. And it's so cool that it's on Zoom now. I had to go in person. Now you can do things on Zoom. The Zoom is, that was another crazy blessing from COVID. Silver lining. Because doctors would always have to travel to wherever right. we were putting the training on. They might have to pay hotel or meals. They might um, have to spend more time away from their practice. And now they can do it with their bedroom slippers on. And the training is, I think, even more effective. That's what they're telling us. We've had some docs who've done both the face-to-face -face mm -hmm. and then the COVID. And I've heard from four or five who've done both who said, COVID, uh, this is better. You know, I can I can see the role plays. I can hear everything. Um, uh, the, the slide material is right there. You have lots of interactivity. Uh, we didn't know how it was going to work, but it's worked very well. It's amazing because in my mind, anything that gets more access to this training is all good. It makes it, makes it so easy for a rural provider. Right. Any provider in a region or, or you know, we have people from outside of the U.S., we're now getting on to our trainings, and it doesn't matter as long as they speak good English. Uh, right, right. That brings me to another silver lining of COVID, which is telepsychiatry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because one of the barriers, not something like one of the barriers is, is, of course, just access to mental health care besides the pediatrician or NP or whatever primary care. Not everybody can care for the entire spectrum. You still need to refer. What if you can't? Absolutely. So I, I think that that's really, really huge. Um, we, were, we were quite surprised and thrilled, actually. How yeah. yeah. I think I'm actually going to try it for my own daughter. I, I'm really excited with a, you know, a psychiatrist in another state who's licensed in my state. It, it really broadens, broadens, and especially for people in rural areas or other underserved areas. Yep. So that's good. But there's still such a shortage. I don't know if you want to talk about the shortage so people can understand what we're actually dealing with. Yeah, and then uh, that also lends to other things that so we can videotape, that we record all of our, you know, our trainings so that people can come back and see them. We never would have been dragging a video camera and a, a videographer around with us to a face-to-face -face training. So it's just made all kinds of things possible that weren't possible before. Right. Why do you think we're having such a sharp rise in, in mental health problems besides COVID? Because that, like you said, is the underbelly. It didn't cause it. It just exacerbated it. Well, you know, there's a lot of suppositions, a lot of theory, mm -hmm. but the short answer is we don't really know. Right. Uh, but we, we do see across the world kind of rising rates of behavior problems. You know, if you use checklists or use formal diagnoses, we know that conditions like depression appear to be rising so that children born in each successive decade 
are more likely to develop depression. And when they do develop it, they develop it at younger ages. So very interesting. But why? Mm -hmm. So we know the genes aren't changing. We know that there's all kinds of crazy, you know, chemicals in our environment. And who knows? Could they have something to do with uh, some of these things? When a newborn, when a baby's born, there's 150 foreign chemicals in the mother's cord blood, mm. which means it's, go, it's been going to the baby for nine months, okay? And so those are possibilities. You know, now divorce is stabilized, but people thought, well, is it more single parent families? And that's certainly a stress. Economic factors, we know racism is associated with increased issues like this. Mm-hmm. So you can just, you know, we can point to many factors that we have evidence that they're associated with greater problems. But you can't point to any one child and say, this is why this child has it. I will say that if you read Jean Twen, she points to the internet as the source of everything. (laughs) Everybody's drug, everybody blames the internet. The internet probably is a very good thing and a very bad thing, both. Right. But it's it's unclear. Um, Now, on the other hand, violent video games are pretty clearly demonstrated to have a toxic effect on the brain. Mm. So uh, good studies have shown it changes brain function. You can see the, the, the changes on PET scans and the activity after a month or two. The more immersive that violent video game is, like if you got 3D glasses mm. or a giant screen, all those have... a, a are linked to greater problems like reduced empathy, more natural aggression. Uh, And so that's kind of what the studies have shown. Uh, Violent video games are not benign. Mm. But we can't- We think gun violence, it's really disturbing. It's hard to say about all the other stuff. But on the other hand, I mean, uh, uh, most of us were, a lot of us parents, we all restricted tended to kind of set limits on it and didn't want the TV raising my children. And so, and the American Academy of Pediatrics has set recommendations and limits for the amount of exposure screen time. Uh, And I think that's common sense, but we just can't say it has these bad effects. Lack of parenting, lack of parenting and using the TV as a substitute you know, that's, I think no one would argue that's a good thing, but can we, can we, you can't randomly assign a parent. You be a parent and you don't do it over here. We just give your kids TV. You can't, <laughs> you can't do that kind of crazy stuff. Right. I mean, each generation is raising in a more difficult environment when it comes to technology, though. I mean, you can't compare TV to what we have right now. It's like screens are roaches, you know, <laughs> if you step on one and there's another one. Screens are everywhere. I, I agree. I agree. I think we're all worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. I did a separate podcast on that on digital citizenship. So we're going to leave that one alone. It's enough. <laughs> um, on, uh, on the other hand, now let's go to the other side of the uh, okay. question. You could say, so we do know that genes, uh, there are genes that are linked to, they're not powerful genes, but if your parent has bipolar depression, mm-hmm. it's a slight slight genetic increase in risk that you might have it but 
that also means that maybe your parent is manic when they could be parenting you. And that's also kind of an environmental effect. Mm -hmm. So now studies of young children showing probably the greatest risk factor, one of the greatest risk factors for very young children, uh, one to four is parental depression. Mm. Huge effect. Um, a huge effect. That's so very interesting. So in those vulnerable years, kids need certain things from parents. Interestingly, parental depression is worse in terms of the impact on kids than parental schizophrenia. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So schiz you could be schizophrenic, but that doesn't mean now in the middle of a psychotic episode, you know, it may be hard to do anything. But think of what a depressed parent does. They right. withdraw. And all of the natural attachment and nurturing that the child needs, mm. a depressed parent can't give. Right. It's that still face experiment. Yeah. Right? It's like a schizophrenic parent may right. you know, be, be more really kind of attending to their baby for all kinds of reasons. Right. You know, I don't, I haven't seen any data on this, but I just anecdotally am seeing more and more preschool, you know, toddlers who are showing more developmental delays than I would expect. Any well, data on that? Uh, of course, you know, the, the whole autism story, uh, you know, and the researchers fought about it back when I was at NIH and have continued to fight about it. Is it true autism? Or what is, you know, once you, once you say there's a spectrum, pretty much larger and larger number of people begin to fit under the tent. And so that's still not non-controversial. It is still somewhat controversial. Uh, there have been some interesting studies. So if you look at a state like California, uh, where you saw, look at their rates of intellectual disability and their rates of autism. Well. Over two decades, the rates of autism went up like this. The rates of intellectual disability went down, probably because people like the uh, diagnosis of autism much more. Right. And to say, my child is intellectually disabled. Right, right. So, so there's a lot of uh, diagnostic substitution. Right. And, uh, but, yeah, uh, again, if you think back to all the foreign chemicals, so if autism is really on the rise, at some point, I think we'll discover, you know, something leaching out of Tupperware might be, explain some kids' developmental issues, not necessarily all, because we know genes are very important as right. well. Right. So it's, it's going to be a complicated story that there's going to be no one answer. Right. I was actually referring that. That's very interesting. And that that's true. And I, I do think it's a complex, you know, interplay of genes and environment, epigenetics, you know, it's complicated, but I was actually referring to right now, right in the post pandemic, you know, period or late pandemic period, where I'm seeing more kids who are just non-specifically delayed. I'm just wondering if it is that maybe more parents are depressed and they're not giving the kids the stimulation they need, but there's no data on that. Uh, one my volume on this thing here. Could you restate the question so I get, get it all? Sure. So what I was saying is I haven't seen it written up anywhere, but what I'm anecdotally seeing with my eyes is more and more children 
showing just nonspecific delays. They don't, sometimes they seem to be on the spectrum and sometimes we think they might be, and then they just get more stimulation and they do better. I think they seem somehow understimulated. I don't know if the parents are depressed and that's the effect of depression you talked about from the pandemic. I don't know. Yeah, I actually haven't seen any data on increased developmental delays no. or maybe kind of sub-threshold developmental issues or intellectual issues. I haven't seen any data on that, so I can't really say it's happening or not happening. But we certainly do know that kids and parents have been greatly stressed out by COVID. And could that be leading to factors where the parents attending to something else and maybe... You know, for example, we had kids not going to school. Does that affect some of them learning and development-wise? Probably so. Uh, everybody's talking about it. I haven't seen any, like, superb studies of that yet, but I'm sure we'll see some. Right, we should talk to the early intervention agencies because they're all telling me they're seeing it too. They're saying the same thing, your, de- your early develop- uh, intervention people? Absolutely, and it's harder to get the kids to get evaluated because it's such a glut. Ah, very interesting. Yeah. You're telling me something I hadn't known. I'd like to know why. It's scaring me. It's really scaring me. I'm seeing also a tremendous rise in parental anxiety. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so parents anxious, you know, at least there's one other other generation in the house that's going to be anxious too. Right, right. Because that's what they're modeling. Yeah. And anxiety. Uh, Not not just modeling. No. If a parent is anxious, the kid is automatically anxious. Think about it. It isn't modeling. It's if my parent's scared, I guess I should be scared too. Oh, like co-regulation. It's very different. It's called social referencing. And the child, for example, various studies, you take one-year-olds and you put them on a table with a visual cliff. What is that? The table goes like this, and all of a sudden, it's plexiglass. And so the table falls out. Now, when a parent is saying, come on, honey, uh, the child will crawl right out on that plexiglass uh, shelf. Mm. Uh, But if the parent, look at this, the child automatically pulls back. You know, nature's endowed us, so it's not just modeling. It actually is. It's kind of a direct insertion of a little anxiety in the child. There's something to be anxious about, so they're anxious. And, that, wow. and that's where, the, you know, that first learn, you learn that at very young ages. So if a parent, and so that's a big deal. So a parent can't sleep without, you know, think they have to be with the child every night mm-hmm. and won't let him go to bed without, and then the child demands it. You know, uh, you know, many ways, Parents have to model to not be afraid in the world and to have normal kind of expectations. The parents are anxious. The kids will be anxious. And then there's modeling. But I'm talking about a direct contamination. Wow. Wow. Well, maybe that's what I'm seeing. You, if, if you got an anxious parent, you're going to have an anxious child. Not modeling. That's an anxious child. Wow. Wow. And they may be fearful enough not make those developmental milestones. I'm seeing it with eating as well, where they're not making the milestones with eating. They're just getting stuck yeah, on the Well, just think about it. The parent can't do all the attend with relaxation and no fear and full attention to the child's needs. They can't do that. Things are going to 
there are going to be delays. There are going to be differences. Wow. Very scary. I want to get to something um, positive. I want to talk about more of our solutions. <laughs> because we can talk about the bad things all the time and we'll just end up depressed ourselves. I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, obviously I'm a strong believer that because there will never be enough child psychiatrists, mm -hmm. specialists, for my children, my children's children, my children's grandchildren, it will not happen ever, most likely, because it isn't like, oh, everybody's knocking down doors to become a child psychiatrist. It, it, it's kind of like how many pediatric neurologists are there ever going to be? You know, if we had one on every corner, that probably wouldn't be the best use of resources. Well, the same thing here. But what that means is the people that parents know and trust the most are their primary care providers. And the problem has been we haven't had good training during residency, whether it be pediatrics or family medicine. Because it needs, and that's what the Surgeon General advocated for 20, now 20 years ago. So that's kind of what we've, we've been doing. One of the fixes is that every primary care provider, so we need to build this into residency programs. Right. You know, we're doing it after the fact now with practicing doctors. We want to get more and more into residency programs. We're starting some interesting collaborations with the American Board of Pediatrics and the Academy American Academy of Pediatrics. So some of those organizations now are coming to us and wanting to partner to begin addressing the problems. So I think that's probably a, a, a very important one. Um, uh, I could spin like 20 other crazy ideas here. Like, Go for it. I want to hear more. Why not universal preschool? Oh High quality universal preschool. Okay. It has to be high quality. And if there's a family that's stressed out and we have high quality there, that's going to be a beneficial environment to help sure. those kids uh, where kind of some of the development can be taught and everything. And again, we're not saying the government's responsible for raising your children, but we need that. Just like we need seatbelts and cars and teachers that are competent. Uh, I mean, on and on. So universal preschool would be a really big one that I would uh, end up arguing for. Right. Not just a lottery. How's that? Not just a lottery. Not just a lottery where you have to, like, be one of the 60 top oh, people okay. to get in. I right. had that with one of my families. We were number 60. Yay. I mean, what, it blows me away that pretty much uh, all 15 or 16 of the other Western European countries right. have preschool, universal preschool paid for. And we are, in many ways, a third world country. It's incredible. Uh, if you think about how we're not investing in very young children, their health and well-being. Uh, now, that leads right into universal health care. You know, and, and the CHIP program and other things have been very important, but they still miss a lot of kids. Uh, that, that's quite clear. Um, the other thing I would say, man, if I could have the head and heart of every teacher in the country uh, so that teachers learned, for example, we did a very big study of ADHD children across the country. 
And one of the things we did in that study is we went in and we taught teachers. So we had a very intensive behavior therapy arm that included putting an aid in the classroom for a kid, included 14 sessions teaching the teacher, classroom management and not yelling. And there's effective programs out there that do that. But I would go in there and, you know, so I have had five kids, but I would go in there and I'd be so sad as I'm sitting in a classroom and I might have a, a, a teacher that, you know, we talk about leaving no child behind, leaving no teacher behind. Right. Some of these teachers are overwhelmed. They don't have <laughs> skills. Uh, they, they were never taught in basic classroom management. Their leadership may say, all you got to worry about is the three R's and high stakes testing. You know, these are noxious forces, I think. Uh, but every teacher ought to have the skills to conduct a fun, loving, quiet classroom with skills of what to do for the child who's a little kind of out there. And, and that goes back to special education and other things without labeling or demeaning that child, because that's just going to make things worse. So preschool, great schools, but trained and supported teachers. And in those schools, so again, we have programs that teach teachers things they didn't learn in grad school or teaching school of how to, make a game in the classroom that gets better behavior control and better classroom uh, academic accomplishment. We've got great anti-bullying programs that are disseminated through large parts of Europe that we don't do here. And so, you know, we just, you know, those would be the things that are probably at the top of my list. There's so many different factors, though, that are, you know, so I feel so bad for teachers, like I feel bad for pediatricians for the same reason, right? We have so much on our plate. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, yeah, that's why I like that phrase, leave no teacher behind. It's easier right. to blame teachers or this or that, and there are this or that, and then a teacher's complain about the parents, and they're both, those are both lose-lose strategies. Um but so that does mean, you know, building partnerships between parents and teachers, teaching teachers, giving them some skills mm -hmm. uh, uh, that they don't don't usually get. And that translates into better behavior for the child in the classroom, on the playground, reduced bullying, uh, less anxiety because the child's being bullied or being threatened at school or intimidated. Uh, I think those would be some of the healthiest steps we could take. It's amazing. I want to talk for just a minute about advocacy, because I saw that on the, the REACH Institute website. I did not realize that was a whole area of helping parents be better advocates. Yes. Well, that's, that's an area that um, I'm very passionate about. Uh, when I was at NIH, I had the good chance to get beat up beside the head multiple times by, you know, family advocates. And they would come to me and say, Nothing about us without us. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had some really strong, capable mentors, like the one of the founders of NAMI, Lori Flynn. Mm. But I got to know the CEOs uh, of NAMI, of CHAD, the Federation for Families, Mental Health America, the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance, Bipolar Kids Alliance, etc. 
I got to know them all, and I brought them together into a coalition to develop an ad, a parent coaching advocacy program. Wow. We a little steering committee, and and uh, I became, you know, I've written a book on this, passionate. If every, if, so this is what Lori Flynn would say to parents, new parents should say, is your child getting the very best care? If not, why not? Don't stop until they are. And, uh, and so I, now that might seem idealistic, right. but I've seen parents make amazing changes. You know, my, my niece uh, came to me 20 years ago about her son. And I said, you know, he was like reading, he was singing the alphabet song backwards. He was uh, perseverating numbers and letters, no, no, no eye contact, all the kind of things. And I said, he's got autism. And then I said to her, you have to become the most powerful advocate for your boy because you're going to get, people are going to tell you no resources because you're going to have to be willing to say to a school district, all right, I'm going to bring a lawyer in or we're going to, well, she was so savvy and she transformed several school districts uh, uh, herself as an autism, a parent of an autistic child. And she went on to get kind of multiple degrees and wrote multiple books on autism. But that's kind of what we did. Now, that's one of the things that I developed when I was at Columbia. We call it the Parent Empowerment Program. And so similar things got developed at NAMI and at CHAD. Uh, but uh, we were right there first with children. A coaching program for new parents delivered by very experienced parents who actually have a mental health partner like myself. So we would co-teach this and then new parents would get hooked up with a peer advocate. Who is is it ongoing? Them. I'm sorry, this is ongoing now? Yeah, uh, this is still ongoing in, in, in New York state. The problem is most states in New York, they pay for parent advocates, parent coaches. So if you're a parent in New York and you can, you can just say to your mental health person, you, pediatricians may not know much about this, but you can say, I want to talk with a, a peer mentor. I want an advocate. Bam, they're going to swoop right in. And in New York, peer advocates are paid to paid position in the Office of Mental Health. Now, in a lot of states, there's peer advocate advocates for adults. So if you have schizophrenia, there might be another person who's recovered from schizophrenia who can walk you through the system and teach you how to advocate for yourself. Well, that's kind of what the program we developed. Uh, and it's going strong in New York. And you see a bit of it in some other states. The biggest problem, most states don't pay higher parents to become coaches for new parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, the, the problem we, we uh, saw was New York was hiring people, but they didn't have a training program for those advocates. Because you don't want an advocate saying, ah, I don't listen to those mental health types. What you, what you need is blue-green algae. That's helped my kid. So you got to train these people. <laughs> but once trained, 
And that's why we always had ongoing supervision for them that included a very experienced mental health advocate and a mental health expert. And then they were the coaches and trainers of new advocates. And the new advocates could kind of reach out to new families. So you might come into the clinic and then as you, you come in, you get introduced to an advocate say, look, I'm a parent like you. And I'm here just to kind of, this has got to be confusing and overwhelming. You know, I'm here in your camp. Uh, here's what I can do. Uh, how, uh, how how can I help? You're, you're not talking about the parent advocate that the school district provides at the meeting. You're talking about a real advocate because that's just a paid position, like a position for them to just sit there and stand up for the district's point of view. It does depend. Some schools. So these are people hired out of the Office of Mental Health. Mm-hmm. So the New York State budget pays for these people out of the Office of Mental Health. Many of them get deployed into mental health settings. Some might end up in primary care settings. Some may have relationships where they end up a little bit in schools. But usually, like in New York City, uh, they are, quote, unquote, advocates, but they're very different. Uh, And so the advocates you find in New York City, actually, I tried to get into that program and offer our training to them. uh, couldn't Couldn't quite crack the nut. But uh, they, it's somewhat different, but it, it's still intended to be an advocate for parents of kids in the schools, kids who are having trouble. So I can see some overlap. But no, the mental health system in New York has, hires parent advocates. It's a full-time job with benefits. Uh, and then uh, it's the coaching program that I and other colleagues at Columbia developed that they go through. Okay, so they go through the program, they're trained. How do they get assigned to someone? Uh, become, become one of several ways. Uh, and and this, is, this is interesting. In New York State, sometimes a, the parent advocate agency might be independent, and they could set up their own storefront. The problem with that is it's not hooked tightly into the mental health system. And more and more, New York is saying, look, it makes no sense to have them out there as an independent storefront, you know, they need to be where the families are coming when they have mental health issues. And that's kind of where they kind of need the support. Um, I will tell you, um, since I've worked a lot with the advocacy organizations, one of my favorite questions for every time I meet a new advocate is, okay, uh, and most of them will tell you they joined the organization to give back. Mm-hmm because someone had helped them so much. So, so this is the question I asked. Okay, Joe, Barbara, whomever, if, and this is often the presidents of these associations, if you knew everything you know now, back when you first, think back to when you first got the right diagnosis and were told the right treatment. But think about that. From that point, you had the right diagnosis, right treatment. How many years did it take before you got fully up to speed with all of what you had to do? And I've had almost all parents say five to 10 years. They finally got the right diagnosis. They got maybe a doctor who he or she is doing. They got uh, uh, the right diagnosis and they started the right treatment. But what do you say to the in-laws who say, don't bring the kid here? What do you say to the insurance company 
uh, that says, no, we can't pay for that. What do you say to the, the school system that says, no, no, I'm sorry, we don't have any resources. Right. That's a huge learning curve, even if you had the right diagnosis. Right. And those skills, doctors know nothing about, right. like how to advocate for your child. Right. They didn't teach us that in medical school. That's why you need experienced parent advocates. Right. So a million percent. So I still don't even know how to access these. They exist. Well, you, you ask, ask any public mental health clinic. And, and now, so if you said as a practitioner, I would love to talk with a couple parent advocates. Mm -hmm. Could they come by and visit me in my office? I'm sure you could get an, at least an office visit. You might be able to uh, uh, refer some of your patients to them, uh, but then where they work in the public mental health system. So if you're dealing with a Medicare patient, uh, Medicaid patient, a piece of cake because they work almost exclusively, not solely, with Medicaid. Right, but I'm still not even interested. I'm sorry. I'm not understanding what agency. How would you find them? Say a parent listening to this and says, well, I want one of those. <laughs> uh, well, let me just, uh, let's try something out. If I were to type right now on Google, Parent Advocates, New York State Office of Mental Health. Okay. All that, you. you're going to find a bunch of links. And then... Whom to contact and where to contact. Mm -hmm. So right. if that you that doesn't work for you, call me back and I'll I'll hook you into it. But it's a big system, and I think there's about two thousand parent advocates across the state. Mm -hmm. So if you have a complicated case, that's Medicare. Uh, excuse me, Medicaid. I always confuse those two. Uh, that's Medicaid. I am sure, unless the advocates. I can only see patients who are Long Island Jewish. You know, right. who knows what they might say. Right. Oh, yeah. They yeah. could be attached to a mental health facility. But some of them, I know, are freestanding. And uh, they're happy to chat with any parent. Uh, no, uh, yeah. You know what I'm a big fan of? I'm a big fan of support groups. If you get to a support group, you will eventually get help to get one to one of those people, I think. I, I, I think it's one of the most, you know, one of the things... Going back to advocacy, one of the things I, when I have a new family, I say to every parent, I have some homework for you to do. And I give them a little website and I say, here's NAMI, here's their address. I want you to attend two of their groups before you come back and see me. Right. And I assign them as homework. It could be Chad, it could be the Anxiety Disorders Association of America, NAMI. But because they're going to learn things, and each of those associations has a good scientific board. They're not, they're not doing smoke and mirrors. They're doing right. soft science. So I want them there to go meet other parents because the parent may say to me, oh, I'm just scared of medicine. Well, then they go encounter another parent who says, oh, yeah, I was scared to death as well. And finally, after a year, oh, but it's turned his life around. Right. Now, that parent's really going to help my parent. Who thinks I'm taking drug company money? Right, 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 <laughs> right. No, it, it's, again, I, I'm a parent of a child with adult child with special needs. So I am a huge, I joined like every support group even if it wasn't relevant. Over the I'm, I'm a total believer. Yeah. You know, I think it's more powerful than any individual psychotherapy, personally. And, and you know, we don't really have time. I want to thank you for your time. I was going to say one thing, though, is that parents can do amazing work 
and changing. You see a problem, you don't have to feel I don't have a degree. You have a parent, you have a parent degree. That's like the most powerful degree, <laughs> I think. No, I, I agree. Uh, parents are the most important person in their child's life and what they can do. And, you know, it's going to make the major difference. And so I am a strong believer in hope that, yes, you can get there from here. Your child can have a good life. So, so often, you know, even for the simple diagnosis, I call it simple diagnosis. You might call it simple diagnosis of ADHD for a parent. Their hearts are broken. Right. Their dreams are dashed. It's like telling a parent their kid has cancer. And, uh, and what did I do wrong? It's devastating. And so hooking them up with other parents and teaching them to advocate and why that's so important, because they're the ones who are going to teach the child to advocate for himself. Right. Whether he's a teen or a young adult. Absolutely. And there's so much resources on your REACH Institute website for parents as well. Yes. Uh, it, yeah, we're it, trying to, you know, what we do is mostly for the, the healthcare providers because NAMI already has a lots of stuff and Chad has lots of stuff. All these advocacy organizations have great websites and I've been on their boards and helped them uh, create those websites for NAMI and uh, Chad at least. Um, so um, great. And so we don't necessarily need to compete with them or create that with them, but we want it. If someone finds us, we want to have at least a little uh, there for them. And then we link back to NAMI, to the Federation of Families, to uh, Chad, et cetera. Right. And you also link to the specific um, programs in the state, like we have Project Teach? Uh, we, we don't usually uh, link. We are now creating internal resources. Okay. And so what we do for internal resources, when we teach new doctors, it's not ready for prime time that we could put it up on the website because then we'd have 40,000. I, I just don't even know how to do it yet. Mm -hmm. But when we train doctors in a given area, they give us, hey, this is, this is good. This is good. This is good. So we'll have a little list, Massachusetts, Maryland, D.C., and all these little resources that even some of our students who we've taught, they begin sharing with each other. We kind of scoop up all that information, but we're not trying to replicate all of that on, on, on the website. Uh, right. What we do do is we have a little map that shows all the doctors across the country where they are and what they've been trained. If, mm -hmm. they, if they give permission to click on a button to contact them, because it's nice to know here's a pediatrician who's been, who's been really well-trained. Uh, and not not just someone who's going to throw their throw their hands up and say, "I'm sorry, I can't help you. I don't do I don't do dental and I don't do mental." And that's <laughs> I have to thank you so much for not just for your time, but for the amazing, amazing work you have done for our children. It is just I'm thanking you from the bottom of my heart as a parent, as a pediatrician. Thank you so so much. I really, really cannot thank you enough. Well, it's a special honor that you invited me, and I'm, I'm just very pleased to, to be here. And thank you for your good work, including oh, this podcast. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you guys. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you so, so much. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, 
Check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.